The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. The title of my message for you this evening is True Freedom, True Freedom, and we'll get into that, but I want to say as we get started that everything we're going to be looking at tonight in the statements that Jesus makes and then the conversations that flow out of those statements, they're all rooted in this incident that unfolds in the first 11 verses of John chapter 8. It's a story that we looked at in great detail last weekend, but because I know that you know we get around and, and we're not always able to be here every weekend. So for those of you who weren't here last week, I'll just give you a quick recap. It was this event where Jesus was teaching there in the temple courts, and at some point while he's teaching, a group of religious men interrupt his teaching, and they drag with them this woman who's been caught in the act of adultery, and they thrust her down at Jesus' feet, and they demand to know, what do you think we should do with her? And of course, John tells us they did this, not because they genuinely cared about this woman or cared for justice, but rather because they wanted to entrap Jesus. How many of you know you can't trap God? (laughs) Anytime you try to set a trap for God, you end up setting a trap for yourself, which is exactly what happened. These religious leaders ended up ensnaring themselves and entangling themselves in the very trap that they had set for Jesus, and they walked away frustrated, and she walked away forgiven and free. It's a beautiful story with so many life lessons and applications. And if you weren't here, you can go back and rewatch it on our website. But you can imagine in the aftermath of that event, you have this big crowd of people and they're watching all of this unfold. I mean, just imagine what it would be like if some kind of event like that transpired here and then the dust settles, the woman walks away, the religious leaders are gone, and all the people are slack-jawed and saucer-eyed staring at Jesus, just, what did we just see happen? And in the aftermath of that event, Jesus makes the following statement. Look with me at verse 12. It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Powerful, powerful statement. Jesus here claiming to be the light of the world. Now, this is another one of those I am statements of which there are seven in John's gospel. This is the second one that John has recorded for us. The first one came to us in John chapter six where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And now here we have the second one where he says, I am the light of the world. Now in each one of these I am statements, Jesus claims for himself the great covenant name by which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, the name I am. And he combines that with some declaration about his person, about his being. In this instance, he says, I am the light of the world. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about where Jesus was when he made this statement, because it just fills in the backdrop, really colors in the picture for us. We know that he was in the court of the women, and he was there right after the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. We can kind of put that together by reading John's Gospel. 
Now, in the court of the women, we know this historically, that during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would erect these four huge candelabras. They were about 75 feet tall. And at the top of them, they extended out into four branches. And at the top, they had these huge drums filled with oil. And every day, the priests would ascend ladders, and they would take these pitchers filled with oil, and they would dump them into these drums. And then they would produce wicks. And you know what the wicks for these candles were made of? This is kind of cool. The wicks were made of the worn out garments of the priests, which I just love that. You know, the picture, the symbolism there, like as our works are to be a light that points people to Jesus by this, um, what's that scripture in Matthew chapter five that all men will know you're my disciples by the, the light. Let men, let your light so shine. There, I knew it would come to me. Just give me a minute. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and they give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So the wicks were the worn out garments of the priests. And all night long, for seven days, the candles would shine. Now, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian from this era, he said that the light that emanated from these candles on top of the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem was so bright that it would illuminate all the courtyards in the surrounding region for the entirety of the feast. Now, in addition to this glorious light that you have just bathing the ancient city in light, you also have the sound of praise and worship filling the air throughout the night because it was a party. It was a celebration. And so the Levitical priests, they would pull out their instruments and they would lead the people in worship. So what was the point of all this? Well, the light reminded the people of how God had miraculously led the Jewish people through their wanderingness wilderness, through the wilderness for a period of 40 years. And during that time, every night, he would be a covering to them, a warmth provided for them in the form of a pillar of fire. At the same time, that light, the light that shined from the temple, it anticipated the coming day that all the prophets spoke about when the promised Messiah would cause his light to extinguish the darkness of this world. So that's what all the people were looking forward to and they were celebrating during this feast. Now, prophets like Isaiah spoke of this coming day when the Messiah would extinguish the darkness of our world with his light. Let's go ahead and read Isaiah 9-2 together. The people walking in darkness. Are you with me? Okay, let's try it again. Let's read it out loud. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So all the people there in the temple courtyard would have been familiar, certainly, with Isaiah's prophecy about how the Messiah would extinguish the darkness when he came, and they were longing and waiting for him to bring his light. Now, the day that we're talking about, the day that Jesus makes this statement, is the day after tabernacles. You say, what's the big deal about that? Well, it's the day when all the lights came down. So they're disassembling these giant menorahs. The lights had gone out. In other words, the party was over. And I imagine that day was probably 
I don't know, it probably felt a little bit like the day after Christmas, you know, all that's left is the wrapping paper and the tree and the, the tree's no longer lit, you're taking the lights down and all of that. And it was a reminder to the people of the fact that the Messiah had still yet to come, or at least that's what they thought. But little did they know the Messiah was standing in their midst. And so he cries out with that as a backdrop, I am the light of the world. He was announcing himself as Israel's long-awaited Messiah, who he was associating himself with all of those Old Testament prophecies. He didn't say, I'm a light, or I'm one of many lights. No, he said, I am the singular light of the world. And by the way, whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You don't have to walk in darkness, which is good news, because this world, it can be a dark place, amen? amen? And there's a lot of darkness in our world, and perhaps you feel like you've been walking through a dark valley lately. Maybe you feel like you're in a dark place. Sometimes we'll use that language to describe our emotional or spiritual state. I've just, I'm in a dark season of my life. And can I just tell you that Jesus is here and as the light of the world, he wants to illuminate your life. He wants to drive out the darkness from your heart so you don't have to walk in darkness anymore. I love the way the Apostle Paul described this process. The process we're describing here is the process of conversion. And he described it in his letter to the Corinthians. Let's go ahead and read this one together out loud as well. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Ooh, I love that verse. But there's a lot there, so let's just take a second to unpack it. We're talking about Jesus, the light of the world, bringing his light into our lives. And as Paul searches for something that's analogous to what happens inside the human heart when Jesus makes his entrance, he goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, rather, and he reminds us of that instance in which God speaks into the empty void, the inky blackness of nothingness, and he says, light be. And in that moment, God flips the light switch of the universe into the on position, and the darkness scatters, and the light floods every corner of the universe. Well, something similar happens in the heart of every person who gives their life to Jesus. It's, it's a bit like flipping on the switch in your heart. God's will gets illuminated. His plan and his purpose take on new meaning, and the darkness begins to lift to the point where for a long time, when someone would become a Christian, it was synonymous with seeing the light. My grandpa loves to talk about, have you seen the light? And it's another way of saying, have you met Jesus? That's what God wants for you this evening. And that's what Jesus was offering to these people when he said, if you follow me, you don't have to walk in darkness anymore. Praise the Lord. In verse 13, the Pharisees challenged him. And they said, here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. And Jesus answered, even if I testify of my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. 
But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I'm one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where's your father? Go get your father. And Jesus said, you don't know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And he spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So we see here Jesus being challenged. The Pharisees clearly understood what he was saying, what he was claiming when he said that he was the light of the world, and they didn't like it at all. And so they challenged him on it. I said, who are you to claim this for yourself? And Jesus says, it's not just me saying this for myself. There are two witnesses. Now, this is important because in Jewish law, it stipulated that in order for any matter to be verified, there needed to be two, not just one, but two witnesses. And Jesus says, here's your two witnesses. I'm one, and my father is the other one. Now, who do you suppose the father is that Jesus is referencing here? It's not his earthly stepdad, that would be Joseph who raised him, but he wasn't actually Jesus' father. Remember, the Holy Spirit covered Mary, and and she became pregnant before Joseph and Mary came together, and so Jesus was literally conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's referring here to God, his heavenly father. And of course, the religious leaders instantly picked up on this fact, and they demand that Jesus go and get his dad. And, and Jesus' response only confirmed their deepest held suspicions that Jesus was claiming God to be his father. In other words, he was claiming equality with God. He did it in no uncertain terms, and he did it on a number of different occasions. And I just think it's important to drive home the point that Jesus and the Father are one. And we see this all throughout Scripture. In places such as Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, let's read this verse together out loud. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Jesus doesn't just tell us what God is like. He doesn't just give us a glimpse of God. No, no, no. He is the exact representation of his nature. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, Just look at Jesus. Now, in the eyes of the religious leaders, Jesus is here making a blasphemous claim, claiming equality with God. And so they set out at once to arrest him. But once again, we're we're greeted with this familiar phrase in John's gospel. They weren't able to. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. There's this reference to this mysterious hour that speaks to us of the cross. So they aren't able to arrest him. And so once more in verse 21, Jesus says to them, I'm going to go away and you'll look for me and you'll die in your sin. And where I go, you cannot come. Now this made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you're from below. I'm from above. You're of this world But I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. So Jesus says a couple of things here that I want to draw out for you. The first thing he says is, 
that after he's gone, and they can't come where he's going, he's talking there about his resurrection and his ascension back into heaven, and he says, you'll continue to look for me, but you won't be able to find me. And what's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about the fact that they're going to continue to search for the Messiah, even though he's standing right in front of them. And that's exactly what happened. After they rejected Jesus as their Messiah, the religious leaders of Israel continued to search. And by the way, they're still searching. They're still waiting. To this day, religious Jews are watching and longing and waiting for the Messiah to show up. Now, in saying this, I just have to share my own heart and passion for my Jewish brothers and sisters. I love them dearly and want desperately for them to come to know the Lord. It's why we're walking in partnership with them in projects like this Red Heifer Project. It's why we do so much work in and around Israel. We long for our Jewish brothers and sisters to come to know the Lord. And, and it's like they're so close. They have the Old Testament. I mean, we, we share the same scriptures. And we're deeply indebted to them. Think about what they've handed down. They faithfully recorded the revelation of God. It was, it was given through the law and through the prophets. And, and they had a meticulous method of preserving the scripture so that what we read today is the same thing that was given to the prophets by God back then. And from generation to generation, they've handed that down. So we're indebted to them. But we're also indebted to them because our Messiah is Jewish. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, and yet, for the most part, the Jewish people have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Now, why is that? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul gives us an insight into why this is. Listen to this verse, and I'll read this one to you, so give you a little break. It says, even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Did you catch that? But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So according to Paul, there is a veil that covers the minds and the hearts of many Jewish people. And yet we know that God is not done with them. If you doubt that, just go and read Romans chapters 9 through 11. We know that someday God is going to lift the veil from the eyes of Jewish people everywhere. And we know that all of Israel will be saved. On that day, the prophet Zechariah says, they're going to look on him whom they have pierced, and they will say to him on that day, where did you receive these wounds? And he, that is the Messiah, will say, in the house of my friends. And so this is the day where there will be great mourning and, and great repentance and great renewal amongst the Jewish people. But as we await that day, we continue to pray for them that God would remove the veil and open their eyes to see Jesus as their Messiah. Somebody say amen. amen. Now Jesus is drawing a distinction between these religious leaders and himself. And he says, you see, there's a difference between us. I'm, I'm from above. You're from below. I'm not of this world and yet you are of this world. So let's talk about that. What does it mean to not be of this world? Well, when Jesus talks about this world, he's talking about the worldly system, the ideology of this world, the, the agenda of this broken, fallen world. Jesus, he came down from heaven. His teachings were otherworldly. We can agree on that point. 
His value system, it was inverted to the value system of this world. It was, it was so backwards and upside down when compared to the value system of our world. His kingdom, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And his allegiance was not to this world either. In fact, everything Jesus did and everything he said and all of his teachings demonstrated the fact that he came from and belonged to another world. And let me just say this. What was true of Jesus is equally true of every child of God in here. You know, there's this high priestly prayer that Jesus prays for his disciples, and by extension, all who would come to faith in him because of their testimony. It's found in John 17. So this is Jesus' prayer for you and I. And wouldn't you love to know what he prayed for? He prayed some wonderful things in there. And one of the things he said in John 17, 16 is this. Let's read this out loud. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. So listen. When you place your faith in Jesus, your allegiance shifts from one kingdom to another. And just as your allegiance shifts, so too does your status. You instantly become a citizen of heaven. You've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness, and you've been ushered into the kingdom of the son of his love. And listen, one of the ways that you really know you're a Christian is because there's something in your heart that no longer feels quite at home in this world. Some of you will know what I'm talking about when I say that. There's a, a desire within the heart of every true child of God to be reunited with our Heavenly Father, to come into our true home. In fact, Paul the Apostle spoke about this at length in Romans chapter 8, and he said, our hearts yearn. For, for God to make everything right. We, we yearn to go to our true home. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors of all time. He spoke about this fact in his book, Mere Christianity. And let me quote him too. And I quote, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. And then he says this, if I find within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Can I just tell you something? Perhaps the reason that you find it difficult to feel at home here is because you weren't made for here. There's nothing in this world, there's no experience this side of heaven that can scratch the itch on the inside of the human soul. You were made with eternity in your heart, and so it's not until you come to Jesus and find your fulfillment in him, and really, ultimately, until you get to heaven, there's going to be something inside of you that feels displaced. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Amen. Praise the Lord. And so Jesus says some really hard things to these guys, and, and we have to address it here because he says it three times in four verses. He says, and if you don't believe in me, you'll die in your sins. Now, this is the most tragic thing that could possibly happen to a person, to die in your sins. He says it once in verse 21, and he says it twice in verse 24. 
You'll die in your sins. To die in your sins is to go to your grave without ever receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior, without ever accepting his sacrifice for you on the cross. And that's what makes it so tragic. The tragic thing about someone dying in their sins is that Jesus already died for your sins. Jesus died for your sins so that you could die to your sins so that none of us have to die in our sins. Does that make sense? So you can be dead to sin, which is the positional truth of every Christian in here this evening. Verse 25, let's carry on. Who are you? I mean, I love their question. And he goes, well, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I've heard from him, I tell the world. And they didn't understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. Don't you know that's my prayer? Every time I stand up here on the stage, and you're all looking at me, expecting me to share something, you know what my heart's cry is? Lord, I, I don't want to say anything that you're not saying. You could say something that's true and have it not be something that God is saying. And so as I'm speaking, as I'm communicating, I'm trying to also simultaneously listen. And simultaneously, I'm praying and I'm saying, Lord, what is it that you want to say? Because it's my conviction that every time we gather like this, God is going to interrupt our regularly scheduled program and he's going to intervene and he's going to address unique situations and unique perspectives and unique stories because he wants to minister to individuals. So you might not get something out of everything I say, but I promise you there will be a point at which God's spirit takes his living word and activates it in such a way that it moves your heart. And that's the part at which you need to pay close attention. So Lord, give me your words. For the one who sent me is with me, verse 29. And he's not left me alone. Oh, another great prayer. He says, for I always do what pleases him. What to God we would be able to say that. I just do what pleases the Father. What's your goal in life? To do what pleases the Father. And even as he spoke, it says, many believed in him. Praise God. So we have all of these varying positions, theories, places that people are coming from with regards to Jesus. Some outright reject him. Some turn their back on him. Others are confused by him. But in verse 30, John tells us that there were many who believed in him, and it was to them that Jesus addressed his next remarks. Look with me at verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. So here Jesus gives us divine insight on what it means to be a disciple. We typically think of the disciples as being the 12 guys who gave up their occupations to spend three and a half years following Jesus around and doing life with him. And certainly those guys were disciples. But the, the term disciple isn't limited to that. The word disciple speaks of a learner or a follower. So in that sense, everyone in here who longs to learn more about Jesus or follow Jesus is a disciple. Praise the Lord. That makes you a disciple. Welcome to the club. 
But the interesting thing here in verse 31 is Jesus doesn't just talk about disciples, but he says, those who hold to my word, they're really disciples. So Jesus draws a line of distinction between those who merely claim to be disciples and those who are really disciples. In other words, not everyone who wears the name of Christ truly belongs to Christ. And if you need proof of that, just look at Judas. I mean, he was with the 12, but he wasn't of them. And so what is that proof that we really are a disciple? And according to Jesus, it's this. It's that you hold to his teachings. Now, let me draw your attention to that word hold there. You might want to circle it or underline it or take a note because it's the Greek word meno, meno, M-E-N-O. And it's the same word that gets translated as abide over and over again in John 15. This is one of the Apostle John's favorite terms regarding what it means to be a follower of Christ. And it's used 34 times in the New Testament. And of those 34 instances where it shows up, 31 of them are in John's writing. So this was a favorite word of his. Now, what does it mean to abide? It means to settle down and be at home at. It means to continue, or it means to remain. The idea here is that in our relationship with Jesus, it's something that can't be static. It needs to be moving. It needs to be ongoing. It needs to be dynamic. In other words, it's not enough to just hold to the idea, well, when I was a kid, I was confirmed, or I was baptized, or I took Holy Communion, or I walked forward at an event. There needs to be an ongoing personal relationship with Jesus where you allow his word to settle down and be at home in your heart and shape you at a core level. So Jesus says, if you do this, if, if you hold to my word, if you just hold it, you just, you love my word. Doesn't mean you get it right every time. Doesn't mean you practice it perfectly. Lord knows we all fail. But if you hold it, if you regard it, if you abide in it, then, verse two, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is one of Jesus' more famous statements and the entity tells us how we can experience true freedom. So let's dig into that in verse 33 and we'll finish up with verses 33 through 36 talking about true freedom. So he says, this, this is how you'll know you're my disciple. You hold my teachings, and the truth will set you free. And this was their response. We're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. So how can you say that we shall be set free? And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. When Jesus talked about true freedom, the religious leaders chafed. They said, we don't need you to tell us about freedom. We're, we're born free, and we, we've never been in bondage. Now, just so you know, it, it's interesting, because when they said that and made that claim, it wasn't even close to being true. Even a cursory glance at the nation of Israel's history will reveal that they were in bondage over and over and over again. They were in bondage to the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And even at the time when they made this statement, they were at that very moment in bondage to the Romans. And yet perhaps it's appropriate that they would 
declare themselves free even when they're in bondage because such is the nature of sin. And when you're trapped in sin, you think you're free even when you're in bondage. Now, when we talk about freedom, we're talking about a concept that is near and dear to our hearts or in our collective psyche as Americans. This might be the value that we esteem and hold above every other. It's the highest virtue. Every 4th of July, we celebrate. We set the entire day aside, don't we, to celebrate our freedoms. And we do that by having barbecue and exploding fireworks. It's a lot of fun. I love the 4th of July. And to be sure, the freedoms that we enjoy here as Americans are, are rare, and they're precious, and they're gifts, and not to be taken for granted. Because I'm a firm believer that whatever you continually take for granted will eventually be taken away. Does that make sense? And we see some of our freedoms being threatened. But to this day, as of the time of the delivery of this sermon, we still have the freedom to worship as we please. We have the freedom to speak out. We have the freedom to bear arms. We have the freedom to live our lives with minimal government interference. And these things are worth promoting and protecting and celebrating. Amen. And yet, as great as our political freedoms are that we enjoy, it's not what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about something much deeper. He's talking about true freedom. You see, many people who are politically free are enslaved spiritually. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it in his letter to the Romans, and I'll just read this one to you. He said, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. That's Romans 6, 16. Let me just say something. It is the nature of sin to enslave. Sin wants to enslave you. And that's something that we need to communicate to young people. It's something that we need to understand as adults, that sin's not just fun and games. It's not just that God says stay away from it because he's a cosmic killjoy. No, no, sin's goal is to enslave you. And at the end of the day, every one of us is going to either serve sin or we're going to serve Jesus. I think Bob Dylan had it right when he sang, everybody's got to serve somebody. He was right. We're either a slave to sin or a slave to Jesus. Now, what sin does is sin promises freedom, but it produces bondage. People like to say, you know, you can't tell me what to do, preacher. I'm free. This is a free country, and I'm free to do whatever I want, and that's true. But oftentimes, when a person exercises their freedom to do something, they lose the freedom to say no to that very thing. And as a couple of examples of that, the drug addict, he swears up and down that he's free, but he's not. He's enslaved to that pill or that, that chemical or whatever it might be. The alcoholic says he's free and he can do what he wants, but he's a slave to his addiction. The person who sleeps around and jumps from bed to bed thinks that they're free to enjoy themselves with whoever they want, but they're a slave to their lust. And Jesus here is saying, I came to liberate people from their bondage to bring them into true freedom so you don't have to be a slave to your fleshly lusts and impulses and desires. Now, here's what I found. And this is so key, and this is where we're going to land. Most people get and understand that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin, 
right? So he paid for your sin. You're forgiven. You're free. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. But that's not where the work ends. That's just where it begins. And if I could communicate one truth to you tonight, it's this. That Jesus' death on the cross not only frees you from sin's penalty, but it strips sin of its power, too, so you can be set free. You can walk in victory tonight. (laughs) Praise the Lord. You know, it was on July 4th, 1776, that the Founding Fathers signed the Declaration of Independence. They severed our ties with Britain. We recognize this day and celebrate it as the day that we gained our independence, and it's the day that we traded tea for coffee, praise the Lord, and soccer for football, and a monarchy for a democracy. I think we upgraded. But that freedom, it came at a great cost, and there were a number of men and women who gave their lives to secure that freedom, right? It's also something that we have to continue to fight to preserve. It's not a given, in other words. Well, listen, similarly, for the Christian, our Independence Day, if you will, it happened on 33 AD outside of the ancient city of Jerusalem on an old rugged cross on a hillside called Golgotha, the place of the school. That is the place where God secured our freedom. And let's remember, too, that it came at a great cost. Jesus spilled his blood to secure your freedom. And it's something that we have to fight to preserve. It's not a given. You can be free and walk in bondage. Jesus, you can be free positionally and be in chains at the same time because you haven't exercised your authority over the spiritual realm. You haven't walked in the victory that Jesus secured. Listen, you need to understand that the devil is a defeated foe, and yet he's going to constantly try to drag you back into bondage. But you don't have to succumb to his demands anymore because you're a son not a slave to the devil. You've been liberated, so walk in your freedom. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, God, for our freedom. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here tonight that they would be free indeed, not just free in fact. If you're a Christian here tonight, you're free in fact. That is true of you. But Jesus didn't just come to pay the penalty for your sin. He came to rid you of the power of sin. The power of sin has been broken. The devil has been defeated. His back was broken at the cross so you can walk in victory. And perhaps you fought for this victory for years, even decades. And tonight is the night you go from bondage into liberty. Tonight is the night when you say enough is enough. I'm not going to listen to the devil any longer. I'm not a slave to my past. I'm not a slave to my addictions. I'm not a slave to my bondage or my brokenness. I've been liberated. I've been redeemed. I've been set free. I've been chosen. I've been welcomed in as a son of the king. I am 
a child of my heavenly Father. I am robed in his righteousness. I am anointed with his spirit. I am a vessel to bring his kingdom to bear in this world so I can reach up into heaven and pull it down so that windows are open through my life of what the kingdom of God is all about. And I don't have to walk in defeat. I can walk in victory. This is my inheritance as a child of God, and I choose to appropriate it. I choose to walk in it by faith. I choose to claim it as my divine inheritance, and I say amen, and so be it by the blood of Jesus and the power of the cross. And everybody who agreed said amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.